Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover of Clark Hill PLC. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric, now national, commercial real estate podcast which presents as real estate professionals and attorneys to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues, explanations of sophisticated real estate problems, current developments, and entertaining discussion. Today we have Lee Kaiser who is the principal and managing broker of Kaiser Group, which he co-founded in 2005 with his partner, Estella Kaiser. Kaiser Group is unique because it is a leading player in the mid-market multifamily space. And I wanted Lee to come on the show because he is a very gregarious, very likable man who, who can speak easily on real estate issues. But what I thought was really interesting about Kaiser Group is that they have carved out a niche in this mid-market multifamily space where they are one of the leading players. They have some of the, the biggest market share in that niche. And I just think that that's interesting because in this day and age, you're seeing all these national companies that are gobbling up smaller companies and it's becoming consolidated. The industry itself and many industries are being consolidated into these national firms and here you have the you have Kaiser Group which is uh, dominating this space and I also think it's interesting because some businesses try to do a lot of many different things and they try to do they do one thing and they do their thing very very well this geographic region in this mid-market space so I wanted him to talk about that I also wanted to talk I want him to talk about uh, the hot areas in in the Chicagoland area and he's just a very successful businessman and I wanted to talk about various different business issues and personnel issues and how he approaches uh, being the managing broker of Kaiser Group. Before we get into it, just want I should note that I'm a member and an attorney with Clark Hill PLC. Clark Hill has over 600 attorneys with professionals and professionals in 25 offices across the nation, as well as Dublin and Mexico City. We're a multidisciplinary international law firm that draws on attorneys' comprehensive industry and policy knowledge. If you want to learn more about Clark Hill, go to www.clarkhill.com. If you want to get in touch with me to talk about the show or otherwise, please feel free to email me at pcoover, P-C-O-O-V-E-R at clarkhill.com. Coming up next, Lee Kaiser of Kaiser Group. Enjoy. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I'm your host, Phil Coover of Clark Hill PLC. Today we have with us Lee Kaiser, Principal and Managing Broker of Kaiser Group. Lee, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Phil. Lee, uh, Kaiser Group is a brokerage firm here in Chicago, and why don't you just tell us a little bit about the firm? Sure. We are a uh, commercial real estate brokerage firm, and uh, we have a very niche focus. Uh, we uh, are known for and only seek uh, to represent clients in the sale of mid-market or privately owned apartment buildings in Chicagoland. And how long has Kaiser Group been around? Uh, Kaiser Group officially started in January of 2005, so 13 and a half years. And tell us a little bit about the volume of transactions that you're doing here in Chicago. Well, uh, again, the, the important thing is to realize what a narrow 
focus we have when we talk about sales volumes and product type. So we only work on apartment buildings that are privately owned or known as mid-market, meaning not institutionally owned, and only in Chicagoland. So uh, we have over three billion in total sales within that very narrow niche. Our average deal size is $2.35 million. Do the math, you realize how many deals we've closed in a, a relatively short period of time, and it's, it's all because of that focus. Um, we are the market share leader uh, in that very narrow niche, uh, but we are solidly growing and gaining even more ground in, in terms of market share. Wow, so that's three with a B, the three billion dollar mark, and yes. that's yeah, that's a lot of transactions. And one of the reasons uh, there are many that I wanted to have you on the podcast is I just think philosophically I like what Kaiser Group is doing in terms of you have a narrow niche that you target and you're good at, and you you know what you want to do, and you know what your market is and your capabilities are, and I just like you to speak. This is a real estate podcast, but it's also a little bit of a, of a business podcast. And I think that this is a concept that is uh, interesting to. It applies to all businesses, but uh, businesses, you know, it's an oversimplification, but can either try to do a little bit of everything or a little bit of some things. And the larger, your, the more broad your offerings are, the harder it is to be truly special and truly good at something. And so you've taken a narrow approach to trying to be a market leader and you are a market leader in that, that niche. And just tell us a little bit about your philosophy and how you you came to to target that niche. Yeah, and it's um, it, it's something, frankly, I, I'd love to say I'm some business guru and had this design from the very beginning. It doesn't work that way. It's something you kind of evolve into. So uh, when I first came into commercial real estate at a big national company and I got plopped down in Chicago and said, go sell apartment buildings. And so, um, okay, great, great place to start. And uh, the more I learned, the more I began to understand the industry, um, the more it began getting traction. And my clients started knowing, I learned all about apartment buildings. Um, and then my clients started coming to me for areas other than what I already knew about around Chicago. And it just kind of started growing from there. And when we, uh, at times, would go into different product types or different geography. For, for instance, you know, other brokers would see our success in this big national company and they'd be working in an office building and ask us to join them. And we thought, ah, it's, it's commercial real estate. Sure. Thanks for asking us. Let's go work on it. It was different skill set. And although we adapted and learned it, it was a distraction from our main focus and what we had already developed an expertise in, which was apartment buildings. So we started passing on those opportunities. Then as we began growing within that firm, other brokers from around the country would want to bring us in for expertise in apartments. And so we got asked, for instance, to go to Indianapolis to look at some stuff, to go to St. Louis to look at some stuff. And we found the same problem we had when we started looking at office buildings. It's like, okay, well, we know how this apartment building runs, but we don't know this market to the extent that we know Chicago. And it's not that we can't go figure it out, but what distraction and therefore what detriment to our existing client base back in Chicago. 
And we realized, no, what we, we really need to do is to really just focus in on this niche and become better and better and better at what we do. So our clients benefit more and more and more. And we realized we can actually grow to achieve more by narrowing the focus. And it again, it's not something that we necessarily planned out from the beginning, but kind of learned through experience that we did better work for our clients if we focused. And if we do better work for our clients, we get more business. At least you learned it though along the way. I always tell my wife, I'm not perfect, but I do learn. And so uh, that's usually. <laughs> and I tell my, my wife, I'm not perfect, but I aspire to be. And she yeah. says, that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I, I do mean that though. I mean, some companies try to do several things and they don't realize that maybe they would be better off sticking to what they know well and what they want to do and then they they convince themselves that with more repetition and more efforts that they'd be be good at the other avenues and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't i just i i I do think it's interesting that in real estate um there are the big national shops and that you've really carved out this niche where uh, you have this huge market share right right in what, what you're good at. I think that that's, you don't see that always and it, it is remarkable. Well, thank you. Um, and, you know, to, to expand on, on that a bit, you, you, our company is only as good as the people who are with us. As trite as that sounds, it, it's just so true. Um, and frankly, were it not for my partner, um, I never would have left that big national company. I would have just kept right on being a real estate broker and selling apartment buildings uh, at that company. Um, my partner, uh, and I alluded to her previously, is actually my wife. She left a commercial litigation career to come join me at that big national firm because we she saw that that there was a business angle to what I was doing rather than just sales. Um, And although she was an extremely successful broker in her own, uh, it was her business mind coupled with my natural sales ability that really gave us the footing that, you know, five five years after she came to that firm, that's when we left and opened up our own shop. Um, And since 2005, we've grown very organically, um, very selective on the people who we bring on board as our partners in building this company. Um, But because of that niche focus, we've developed a reputation and a a credibility and a footprint for recognition. Mm -hmm. Really, I was going to say nationally, but it's really internationally. It's um, through, through... uh, technology and through um, people we have at our company in digital marketing and SEO, they're able to, to make sure that our foot, put, footprint is very wide. It's um, always an ego stroke when you get a call from someone from Israel or from China and asking, could we please fly to Chicago and sit down and meet with you in your office to talk about investing in apartments in Chicago? It's, it's, it's wonderful that we're in a day and age where you can get that kind of exposure of your expertise uh, without growing into some big national marketing budget and campaign. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, just a little side note is I can see where people listen to this podcast. And I have a couple listeners in Kenya that are just, they're, they're, they're avid listeners. And so it's just interesting. I can see where the computers are that check into the podcast. And you're right. It, it's very cool. It's very cool. So out of curiosity, um, why did your wife think 
want to break off on your out on your own and you two uh, to start Kaiser Group? Well, uh, what we realized as our volumes continued growing and our our focus continued to narrow was um, we. The, the, we did not, there was no benefit to our business of having an affiliation with a big national entity. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we could serve our clients well with or without that affiliation. Um, and our clients were our clients. They, they were doing business with us because sure. of us, not because of the company where we were. Um, and so uh, it kind of just made sense. Then let's hang out our own shingle and uh, we left. It was the two of us as brokers with three assistants and we opened shop. Um, and now we are at uh, pushing 30 people total and, uh, and, and market leading volume. So it's, 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 it's a team effort. Absolutely. Um, where are you getting a lot of, where are you seeing a lot of your transactions right now? Where, what's a, what's a hot market? What's a high volume? region for you well to answer your question what's a hot market what's a hot market from a broker's perspective is not necessarily the same thing as what's a hot market from an investor's perspective tell, um, tell us about that well yeah sure um from a broker's perspective a hot market look it, it you have to do client service uh, or you you don't have a business but you want to go where there's a good amount of inventory and a high rate of velocity of transactions. So, uh, you know, a, a, an area that's dense with apartment properties and owners and diverse ownership and a high percentage of the market trades hands each year. So, and that shifts with time. It's, that's not static. Right now, where we are seeing the most velocity of transactions is in the lower income neighborhoods of Chicago um, and primarily on the south side. So, uh, South Shore, Chatham, Auburn Gresham, um, Woodlawn, um, all, all the way over the back of the yards uh, into Inglewood. You know, these are, and, and I think the reason for that is those areas, uh, the, the values of those buildings were more significantly uh, affected by the economic crisis and, and the crash than other higher income, more stable areas. Meaning when those values were decimated, a lot of very opportunistic buyers entered the market because they were able to buy those properties at such low prices. Mm -hmm. um, as the markets have recovered, those values also recover very quickly and people are trading properties that they bought at very low bases and they're able to exit at, at a much higher level and a, a great return on their investment. But this doesn't just happen one time. As the market continues to recover, you'll see buildings trade hands two, three, four times in a very condensed period of time as rents recover, as the, as the economic foundation of the area recovers. So from a brokerage standpoint, uh, I would say hot markets are those I've described. Um, including some west side markets, um, Austin, um, some areas at Garfield Park. Um, so we're seeing about uh, approximately 70% of our current transaction 
volume uh, is coming from those areas of the city. Um, if you flip that around though and say, what's the hot market to invest in? Right. It's areas where you're not seeing that kind of velocity in transactions. So um, you, you kind of have to look at where um, rents are growing and you know where are there examples of uh, an investor stepping out, buying a property, renovating it, and asking a certain rent that everyone thought for that neighborhood just doesn't make sense, and then watching, do they achieve it? And if they can, then to me as an investor, that becomes a hot area to consider because there's a demonstrable return. Uh, now, and let somebody else take that initial risk, right? right Be right. the second person in, not the first. And follow up on that. You know, the the, the, the age-old uh, philosophy for investing in Chicago multifamily holds true. Follow the L lines. Follow those stops. Where do the rents stop along going up along the L? And you can almost break it down to a, a number of cents per square foot per L stop. The further you get out, the more it drops. Find out yeah. where the threshold is where it really drops and look at that next L station and say, okay, who's doing something in that area that's interesting and where can they push rents? And that's a place to consider the next hot area. If you jump onto an area where everyone else is saying it's the hot place to go and the place to be, too late. You've already, you've already, well, you'll still do well, but it's you'll you'll hit a single or a double. You won't hit a home run. Sure. Um, we. And by the way, we're seeing that a lot here too. We do a lot of multifamily purchases, and we're seeing a lot in those markets in the south and the west side that you're talking about a lot of sales transactions. So uh, we're definitely seeing that as well. Um, if somebody comes to you and it's that call from Israel and they say, Lee, we're, we're investing in Chicago or in the Midwest and we're, we're looking at a couple different asset classes, why should we choose investing in multifamily over some other, over retail or some other asset class? Well, um, I, would, I would tell that investor you should be interested in multifamily for the same reason I am. Um, it's what attracted me to the, uh, the, the the product class in the first place. The obvious is somebody always needs a place to live. Right. Somebody can always buy clothes from the Gap store. But they can also go online and buy it from Gap on from Gap.com. That's a very elementary example of. Um, why retail to me is a bit spooky. It's not the same as it was 20 years ago. Now it's a little bit spooky. Um, I, I'm sitting in here and, and, and looking at your wonderful office here. And, and we were talking Thank about you. it before this podcast. And you told me that you moved from a building that's one block away. Well, where is the newest and best place to go for office and what's trendy? And that changes. And you know, without getting personal to your to Clark Hill, I imagine you didn't come here and sign a one-year lease. That's the other part about apartments that I love, is that you're only dealing with a one-year lease, and let's say, let's use a 30-unit building as an example. You're probably on average trading two or three units every month. If you're staggered and you have annual leases, you have the opportunity to affect the revenue 
from your investment every month as right. something is expiring. And when you see, ah, my, my neighbor down the street put in a new kitchen and he just got 200 bucks more rent than I thought we could get in this neighborhood, you've got the chance to act on that almost immediately. And you, and you can test case it on 1 30th of your investment without having to go do the whole thing. And if it works, then you decide to do it on the next one. Meaning an apartment investment is malleable. And um, the, the, the cost structure as well is malleable. Meaning I can probably manage the building myself instead of paying a certain percentage of collections to a third party manager. If I can learn to do certain things in the building, I may not have to outsource all the labor. Oh, and my 15 year old kid at home that I'm trying to get off the couch on Saturdays, I can get him or her to go sweep the halls or, or vacuum the halls on the weekend so I don't have to pay for janitor exp- or cleaning expense to Good do luck. that. Good luck. Good <laughs> luck, right? But my point is, it's to and, and these are very um, simple examples, but an apartment investment is malleable on both the revenue and the expense side. Most of the commercial real estate types are not. Yeah, I mean, as you're describing that, I'm thinking about it, the difference between investing in, I mean, when you invest in a 30 unit multifamily building, it's almost like uh, diversifying a stock portfolio. It's better to have 30 different stocks than have uh, one stock that you really like. And so, you know, that's, I think maybe next month we'll have somebody in here to talk about investing in triple net single unit single tenant retail and they'll have a great argument but as you're you're convincing me here which you're very good at but um you know maybe it makes sense to have a 30 unit building where if you have the one tenant go out in a single tenant retail outlet or outlot scenario you have if the one tenant goes out you've got a real problem we're here if a couple tenants move out and it's just cyclical and you can just focus on you don't have that big of a, a dip in your your income stream where you can balance it out a little bit the 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 flip the downside of it is uh because it's an obvious for the for the next person who's coming in pitch triple net okay and and there are all there are all kinds of good reasons to invest in triple net um it's the management intensity of multifamily. That's the one drawback. So uh, right. yes, and especially if you are self-managing, um, the, the, in the example of the 30 unit building, many times it's like having 30 children who, who call anytime they need something for the apartment. So right. it's, very, it's very important to set out clear management policy and make sure that it's very clear in your leases. It's a... Uh, and as the investor, um, it probably is good to have a buffer. Someone on your staff who fields those calls and deals with those issues. But that is the downside to apartments is, is the management. Yeah, I have a friend on the north side uh, whose family owns a couple hundred units and he likes to field those calls. And he will get up at three in the morning, go fix somebody's, uh, you know, plumbing and yeah, that's just him. But that's not everybody. That's not most people. So just know that that's the downside to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so where do you what market? Out of curiosity, are you seeing that uh, 
is difficult to find good product in. And I guess what we do a lot of multifamily purchases and sales here, and we have in the past few years, but um, a few of my clients that like to buy and trade multifamily buildings have not found, have been a little bit, um, they've just been hesitant to find projects that they like. This, uh, I shouldn't say projects, just acquisitions that they like this year and in the past six or eight months specifically. Have you noticed that there is a um, subsiding of, there's a lot of competition for a low amount of inventory or maybe they're just looking in, maybe it's particular to them and the, you don't know, obviously I haven't told you like what types of assets and products that they like. So maybe it's just a particular thing. No, but you've already told me a couple hundred units on the north side. Therefore I can predict the profile. Um, uh, they didn't do that quickly. That's been done over time. Maybe a second generation family uh, or, or investor. Um, and uh, some of their portfolio they more than likely purchased uh, 15 to 20 years ago might have been some of the first acquisitions. Um, and uh, yes, the markets have changed, assuming that's the case, and you're giving me a wonderful blank stare, so let me go with my no, profile. Um, yes, it is increasingly difficult for that profile investor to find good opportunity. The reason those people got into the business is a lot of the reasons that we see people investing in Southside right now. It's You, you can actually make a living owning the buildings. You can, you can get enough cash flow and enough return on it that it becomes not just an investment but actually a business that can support you and your family um, versus when I say just an investment it's uh, like invest the, the, the investor mentality may be like investing in a stock portfolio there's while you'll have people managing it for you and running it for you it's not something you're doing personally so you're looking at a marginal return over time and expecting not only to have that a small cash flow, but also some appreciation in the stock as the company continues to do better um, or continues to do better. Same with an apartment building. As this um, seasons over time, rents slowly go up. I have someone management for me. I understand my cost structure. I'm simply investing in this and parking some capital in here because there's a long-term return on it. That's a very different profile from that landlord owner who bought it to support a family. Mm-hmm. Um, the north side neighborhoods in Chicago, some of the suburban areas, um, have become more of that latter type of investor. The long-term approach, preservation of capital, long-term slow return type real estate investment. Um, it's increasingly difficult for that other profile investor to find um, opportunities in lower cap rate, lower return areas, um, and B, when they do find it, to be competitive with people who are more interested in long-term appreciation of capital and, and slower returns. So um, that has I, I've been doing this for a total of uh, 22 years now um, and have worked some north side neighborhoods where that paradigm has shifted um, and I've watched those neighborhoods transform. Um, and long-term clients I have who are that owner-operator type profile, they cannot be competitive anymore in those neighborhoods. Right. That's Um, a long-winded answer to your question. No, it was a great answer. It was a thoughtful answer, and you're 
you're very good at active listening because you picked up on some of the what I was saying about um, the client that I had in mind. That was that was impressive. Uh, you should do a podcast. You should <laughs> should run a podcast. Um, you know, just switching gears a little bit. I I wanted to talk about. Well, actually. I'm going to ask you some some of those questions later. There's one other topic that I want to talk on those like a strictly real estate topic, which is condo deconversions. <laughs> and we've we've seen it over the past year or two be a hot become a hotter topic. And I was wondering, are you seeing condo deconversions a lot? And maybe maybe <clears throat> you should just start by telling everyone a little bit about what a condo deconversion is. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners will know, some will not know. Sure. So let's let's get rid of the word condo even even though that is the right word condo deconversion let's let's park that for a moment. Let's talk about multifamily buildings. Okay? The building that you see that's more than one unit, uh, really more than 5 units, 6 units on up to uh, skyscrapers that you see downtown that are, are large multifamily buildings, okay? Multifamily has a variety of uses that can occur within that physical structure. The obvious one is apartments. Somebody owns the whole building, leases out the individual units for rent. Another is senior housing. That uh, It can be... Um, a care center, but still a residential, it's a, it's a multifamily building, okay? There are cooperatives where the people who occupy that multifamily building own it in its entirety for a share of the corporation that owns it, and they have the right to occupy a residential space within that. There are condominium buildings where each individual unit is individually owned. My point is, you have to look at it, all of these examples are multifamily buildings. Mm -hmm. So at any given point in time, the highest and best use of that multifamily building can change. So that, it's important to get that concept to answer your question about condo deconversion, because it's all where we are in the multifamily cycle and what makes economic sense. So in order for there to be a condo deconversion, you have a multifamily building that is owned as a condo, as a condominium. Um, How did that building become a condominium? Again, you have to look backwards and see what happened over time. Some of these were built originally as condos and the individual units were sold. Most were converted, meaning it's a multifamily building, was operating as apartments, and a condominium developer bought it because they saw, I can buy that apartment building for $100,000 a unit, but the condos... If, if I were to break this apart and sell the individual unit, it would sell for $200,000 per unit. Now, I'm going to have all the costs of converting it. Uh, I'm going to have to put $30,000 a unit in construction and renovation into that 
to make it attractive to the person who would buy it for $200,000. And I'm going to have to pay a realtor to go sell that. And then I do my calculations and I realize, wait a second, there's a 10 or 15% return in this. So I'm going to buy that apartment building and I'm going to convert it to condominium. And from 99 or 2000 through the crash through 2007, that made a lot of economic sense, which is why you saw so many condos hitting the market. Financing was so readily available for anybody who could buy a condo that the developer was able to get the loan from the bank to do the conversion and go sell the units because they could sell them quickly because of the financing available for those home, home buyers. And the system worked. And it worked for everyone until it didn't. Okay? Then you fast forward to where we are now. A condo deconversion is exactly the process I just described in reverse. But it's all economically driven. If you take that same multifamily building, and and, and this is an example, that in 2006, those units were selling for $200,000 per unit. What is that selling for in today's market when financing is not readily available for the home buyer to buy that unit? When because of the crash, people could not sell units or developers that were caught midstream ended up having to rent those units to make payments to the bank to keep from being foreclosed upon, or the investor who bought the or, or the home buyer who bought that unit didn't have a market to sell it in, so they had to rent the unit when they had a life change and needed to buy a house because they were having kids or they got a job transfer. Um, point being, the crash created a scenario where rents, rental became much more attractive to the market in general. So what do you see? You start, you start seeing rents climbing and you start seeing new construction of apartment properties because it makes economic sense to create multifamily apartments again. Right now, it's that same multifamily building but the highest and best use of it because of economics may be as rental units. That same scenario where we had rental units that were $100,000 a unit, but as condos, they could be $200,000 a unit. That has completely turned around backwards now. Now, the condos may be selling at 135, 140 a unit in that very same building, whereas before the crash, they were selling for 200. But now rents have climbed to the point that it makes sense for an apartment investor to be able to pay 175 or $180,000 a unit for that building because there's a return on their investment for renting it. So what's happening is an apartment investor, again, it's the same multifamily building. It's just yeah, that the pendulum right. has swung, and now the highest and best use is rental or apartments. So the apartment investor will then buy or make an offer to buy the entire condo building. And what they will do is then deconvert that building. They'll take it from condos, they'll collapse all the different pens and make it one pen again and make it a wholly owned property by one individual, which is the apartment investor. Right now, the economics are that that makes sense. So that's a long-winded example of what a condo deconversion is and means. The problem is that it's still relatively new and fresh. 
And a lot of people don't understand what it is yet, especially condominium owners and homeowners associations. And the way they are forced to learn about it, we call them the, the people who throw grenades in the lobby. They, they're out there, they see the angle, and what do they do? They throw an unsolicited offer in, and it goes to the president of the, uh, of the condo board. And, of course, they're going to do what they should do, which is bring it to everyone's attention. We have an offer to buy our whole building. Yeah. And it throws the HOA into chaos because some people don't want to sell. Some say, well, if we could get a certain price, I would. And suddenly it becomes a civil war within that building. Right. So another long-winded way to say, um, yes, at Kaiser Group, we have developed a condo deconversion practice, which is you know uh, filling a niche in the market because we are multifamily experts. It doesn't have to be apartments. It can also be condos. Um, 50% of our transactions of multifamily buildings um, in 2005 and six were converted to condos. So our clients were condominium developers and converters. Now it's the opposite. We're seeing a growing business and representing homeowners associations. The first thing that they need to do is ignore the grenade thrown into the lobby, ignore the unsolicited offer, and find a broker or an appraiser or a law firm that has some expertise in representing HOAs to dis- to understand what the value of the building is as a multifamily apartment investment. Rather than reacting to an offer, know what should be expected. And then if the majority of people in the building agree that makes sense and that's something that they should do, have the property formally marketed, hire the right law firm, I happen to know a good one. Um, (laughs) Thanks. um, To represent the HOA, to make sure all the pitfalls are understood, and then make it a strategic process decided on by the HOA. Don't let it be a reactionary process. I like your answers though. Yes, they're a little long-winded, but they explain how you get there and how it works a little bit. My my explanation would have been a very direct, uh, le- le- not legal, but just a very simplistic uh, reality of the uh, of how the process works. But I really like how you reframed it as it's just a building. It's just different ways to look at the highest and best use of the building, and and how people get there, and and how and what's a better approach. I have seen that where. It's the the bomb thrown into the the lobby of the building, and then people jump on it, and then you're just negotiating with one buyer rather than marketing it for the highest and and best offer that's available. And And the point is, how do you ever know? Unless you you have it valued and you go through the marketing process, how do you ever know what the right price is? Yeah, like if we're we're all in a room, if you're the condo association, we're all agree that we're somewhat interested in selling if it's the right price. Let's let's do it the best way. Let's do this the right way rather than just take the first offer that was... You have a very special piece of... um, uh, of, of value, you you have your building. It's a multifamily building. Anything that you're selling, if you run an auction, and one person shows up to the auction, it doesn't really work. <laughs> you kind of have to yeah, take whatever right. the one bidder is offering. Right. The real thing to do is to make sure, and with a, a painting, that you have an auction, and a lot of people are there, and there's a bidding process. 
Sure. Um, I, I want to switch gears just for one second, just because uh, I noticed an article uh, you wrote for the Forbes Real Estate Council. Uh, I think it was fairly recently. It was just about, it was an article, it's up on your website, so check out the um, Kaiser Group's website. And, it's, and by the it's way, a, just for the listeners, Kaiser has no A in it. It's an unusual spelling. It's K-I-S-E-R. Oh, true. Um, <laughs> and the article was interesting because it was, it was explaining to brokers about what to look for if they're switching brokerage firms. And I, I thought as I read the article, these are good pieces of advice and they apply to many industries, not just the real estate industry. So kind of, the, I, I guess the theory that I'm driving at is I've noticed that your firm has a couple spinoffs and people that have been at your firm have gone and done well separately. And I, I noticed just a few days ago on LinkedIn that you were celebrating a success of one of your younger employees that had um, just became a broker and started with your firm. I forget the young gentleman's name, but I've noticed that some people in this industry or the legal industry, they go about their work and they go about their business um, and they do a great job, they have great careers. But from what I can tell, you seem to have an interest in helping those around you and celebrating the success of those around you. And so I, I thought if you could talk a little bit about that and a little bit about how brokers should evaluate where they're gonna go. I know they're kind of two different lines of thought, but um, that's just something I wanted to talk about with you. Yeah, and, and I think they are two different lines of thought. So um, let's let's talk about uh, the first one first, celebrating yeah. those around you. Yeah. Um, it, um, it, and again, just like deciding that apartments is the niche, is something you kind of evolve into, uh, at least something I kind of involved in, evolved into versus being very smart in the beginning and analytical and understanding it. It's something you, you, you develop over time. So has the concept over time developed of it's, it's, it's really the, the company, the opportunity is not really about me. It, it's not about the owners. The company's a living, breathing thing and it's the sum total of all of us who are on the team. Um, one of the main shifts that we went through. And again, this is not something that we're altruistic by nature or we're just smart in the beginning. You learn it. You learn from mistakes. And we've made some mistakes in the past. I'm sure we'll make more. Um, one of the mistakes was making sure that the people understand who are a part of the team, that they're not working for us or for the company. And it's getting it into your DNA that you're actually working for them. So when the broker comes to you, the, the, the broker is the one putting their career on the line, their income on the line to go out and build this business because it's a commission-based business. Therefore, creating a platform for them is kind of like an incubator for, for them to grow their business. And I think one of the paradigms that needs to be changed in our industry is um, the company existing for brokers to go work there or work for that company. It, it It's the exact opposite of the way it should be. 
the company should be there to work for the agents who are going out to do this for a living. Mm-hmm. So um, our whole staff, we've been through a huge cultural change in the last three years um, to make sure that uh, we, we teach our staff this, um, that, they, that they understand this. And it's very organic. Anytime a need comes up, it's how do we address that need? Um, f- that our brokers have. All of this goes back to better service for the client. It, it, and it all works together. Therefore, it's it's not uh, a PR or marketing or promotion piece when we have someone who has an anniversary to take that as an opportunity to look at it and say, what have they been able to achieve and in what period of time? And wow, that's Herculean. That needs to be celebrated. So I think you were talking about maybe a LinkedIn post. Yeah, and I, I think And so. I won't mention the name either, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. I, I, I won't mention any names. His initials are Jake Parker. Good job, Jake. <laughs> um, but um, no, and, and Jake is an example of someone who has just really applied themselves. And even though they're brand new, came to us shortly after college, um, is doing really well. The company should be celebrating that because Jake's the one going out and creating it, not Kaiser Group. So that's the the first part of it. It's important to understand the people who are actually creating it and to celebrate that um, and to support it. Uh, The the other part of what you talked about is, I think, um, people who have left over the years and where they've gone and what people should be looking at if they're considering switching firms. Right. So... It kind of does play into the same thing. Um, we have had, you know, uh, some of my senior guys came to me a, a little while ago and said, you know, you've you've taught and, and, and trained some of the best people in the industry, but they're not all here anymore. And some of them have gone to either another firm or have opened up their own firm. And I thought, well, you're right. But why is that? Um, and so we began looking internally again to say, what, what can we do to, to retain and make sure that this is the place people want to be building their careers? Uh, we were already a good place, um, but we've, we've shifted a lot. And that has to do a lot with the, the Forbes article that you read. Um, in, in not only making it a wonderful place to build your business, but also incentivizing people to build it together. It's not incentivizing them to stay. Them wanting to stay is a byproduct of creating uh, an opportunity for them to create something together. Yes. Um, and so, yes, that ultimately boils down into money and into equity in the company. Um, but it's all in how you structure that. And I think it, as, as you're looking Uh, The Forbes article was mainly about cautioning brokers who have some degree of success in the industry for looking for the flashiest new car, Uh, meaning it's all a lot of brokers think it's all about the split that I can negotiate with the company, with the house, uh, or it's all about the signing bonus that I can get. Those are not unimportant things, but they shouldn't be the primary driving uh, uh, decision uh, criteria. It should be more, where is my opportunity to grow my business best? And what are my long-term prospects for creating a very healthy practice? Where can I serve my clients best as a byproduct? How can I get more transactions? Where can I do that? That goes into the training, the support, the staff, the overall company reputation in the marketplace, the culture that's been established there, 
Um, that's more what the article was about. And, and Kaiser Group by no means has a lock on that part. But as you're considering a, a change, make sure that, that you look at the company as a whole, not just at splits and signing bonuses, to say where is the best place for me to build my practice for a long-term healthy career. I think that's great. Uh, I, I like the article a lot. I think what you just said, there's kind of two two points that stuck out to me. They're, they're both on different sides. I, I give kudos to you for, after having a successful company for 10 years or so, trying to make it even better and going through a cultural shift and trying to improve your company. I think that's hard for a lot of companies to do, especially when they're doing well and they're successful. Um, but what, what I would always think about with companies is because I lawyers move different firms. I've seen people move, seen people move in real estate industries. Uh, a company always has to compete and you always have to think about as a company, if you don't want people to leave, what are, what is your offering? What are you trying to do to get people to decide to stay with you? Because just staying with a company for the sake of uh, staying with the company is, will work for a period of time. It will work better on some people than on others. And um, I just think, I always think that's really an interesting way to approach. And so the way that you have to approach is as a company, what are we doing to provide the best opportunity for our people? And so, you know, kudos to you for doing that. And, and the same token, I liked how you took the reverse side of it, which is if you're the person leaving, you should be thinking not just about the short term and what's going to happen in the first six months of moving to a new job. Think about it long term. Think about what's the best platform for you and best place for you uh, for the long term. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I'd like to take credit for it all. I can't. <laughs> so, you know, Steve Jobs said, you know, it makes no sense to hire smart people and tell them what to do. It makes sense to hire smart people so that they can tell you what to do. And that's, uh, we have uh, been very fortunate to hire some very smart people at Kaiser Group who are helping us decide what to do. Um, our, our senior leaders, uh, right now Noah Burke and Michael D'Agostino, are helping us put together the right plans uh, for our future um, and helping us determine the company we want to be for long term, um, as well as some, uh, some critical staff members uh, who are not brokers, uh, who come from different fields than real estate and bring different expertise to Kaiser Group, um, who are helping us uh, uh, form the company we will be for the next 20 years versus just the previous 20 years. Fantastic. And then, Lee, we'll get you out of here on one, one last question. Sure. And, uh, I've hit you with some, you know, it's probably, you can talk about the real estate industry or the markets like the back of your hand. And I've hit, hit you on some harder questions about business. And I just was wondering, there, there's um, a notion, I think, in real estate that some people succeed because they have a network and they have uh, they know people are well-connected in the industry. But another thing, there's, there are two things that, that really jumped out that were interesting to me about you and Kaiser Group is one, your narrow focus and your ability to just stay your, your narrow focus and be really exceptional there. And two is you moved here from one mm -hmm. of the Carolinas, if I remember correctly. From North Carolina. Uh, and, and so the notion that in order to be great at real estate or succeed here in Chicago, you need to be 
well connected from the start i think you're an example of somebody who's come here and you've you've made you've carved your own path and uh and i just wondering if you have any advice for people that are starting starting their path and starting their careers in real estate here in chicago or elsewhere yeah i think it has nothing to do with connections um, ultimately, it has everything to do with relationships. How do you build the relationships? You build the relationships by being of value to your client. How do you become of value to your client? If you, if you become of value, you will procure clients. You will create clients. The way you become of value is through knowing more than they do. So how do you learn more than someone who already owns an apartment building <laughs> in, in whatever market you've chosen to pursue? Right. And th- that is important as you're considering moving into real estate is to, whether it's residential or commercial or whether it's office or a- apartments or, or, or whatever, is to make sure you're looking at a company that has a specific methodology for training, for uh, it has the resources, has everything, so that you're able to choose a business plan and then have all of the training and support and a, a way forward to learn more about the market and about the investment than the people who already own there. And if you can do that, then you are of value and you can truly consult and advise and assist that client in maximizing their investments. To me, that's the most critical thing in getting started. That's great advice. I like that. I like the distinction between being well-connected and building a relationship. I think that's important. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, something else that I always tell people, which is when people talk about their network, uh, that's that's not going out to networking groups and just exchanging business cards. That means when somebody emails you or calls you, you have to actually respond to whatever (laughs) favor they're requesting, even if it doesn't help you directly. Because if somebody says, hey, I I need somebody that can do X and you can't do X, uh, the appropriate, if you wanna be, build your network, the response should not be, I don't know how to do that. The response should be, uh, let me help you find somebody that can, or, or I'll use, I'll see if you were able to, you know, it doesn't always work, but the, you have an obligation if you want to build that relationship to take that 20 or 30 minutes out of your day to make a call for them to try to put the people together. And so that's, that's how I always look at networking. It's not just the, the exchange of cards. You have to actually be a positive contributor in the spoke of that network. And I I could not agree more. In real estate, your your network within which you do that is uh, determined by your business plan and what your set of potential clients is. That is your network. And to give you, and I know we're running out of time, to give you a specific example, um, you know, too many brokers just get on the phone. Hi, are, are you interested in buying something? Are you interested in selling? No. Okay, I'll call you next month. Next month, are you interested in buying something? Interested in selling something? And the client's like, stop calling me. And I don't blame the client. That's not helpful. <laughs> One of my brokers this week in the office said, I, I went through this uh, building, and, and 
it's in an area that I never would have expected, but this client built units and, and, and ripped out kitchens and put in incredible kitchens, and he's full at $1,700 a month for two bedrooms, and the nearest comp I can find is $1,200. This guy is achieving something in the market that hasn't previously been done. And I asked him, I said, how many people have you told about this? He said, well, you? I, every single one of your clients should know this. They should benefit from your knowledge of what's happening in the market to say, do you know that this happened at this building and that this is where you can now drive rents in this market? And in your DNA, it has to be exactly what you said. What can I do to help? Not where can I earn a commission? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a part of the networking within your clientele it is to be of assistance. That's a part, when I say knowing more than the people who are there, right. no one else knows this. It's your duty to share it, to help your clients, whether they're buying or selling or not. Uh, you, uh, I'm sorry, I, I go off on these tangents, but no, philosophically, <laughs> you can't create a seller. Brokers are always looking for sellers. You can't create a seller. The only thing that you can create is a relationship that's meaningful to your client, that's bringing value to your client, so that when they become a seller because they have a need to sell, they know your capabilities and they trust you to handle it and they come to you. You can't create a seller. You can only create the relationship so that you're there when someone has need of a broker. Right. And that's that's the important thing to focus on. How do you how are you of value to your client? That's a great final lesson. Lee, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me in. I've enjoyed it. No information contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or other professional advice, and no professional relationship of any kind is created between you, the podcast host, the guests, or Clark Hill, PLC. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guests and not necessarily Clark Hill PLC.